here we are, about to play the Overture Center, and I'm finally getting to meet uh, a guy that I've been a fan of for a very long time, John Kovalik, and I was going to introduce him by saying, well, he's an astrophysicist man, K, a, 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 a sort of game designer and illustrator, and um, a cartoonist and creator of the Dork Tower series. Um, does that mean that you are the chief dork? Oh, I'm the head dork, yes. <laughs> Card carrying. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, whatever it is, wherever you are. Thanks for subscribing, streaming, or downloading and listening to us on your computer or tablet or phone. I'm Austin Titchener, one-third of the Reduced Shakespeare Company, and you're listening to this week's Reduced Shakespeare Company podcast, number 604, cartoonist John Kovalik. John Kovalik is a cartoonist and board game designer who is also the creator of the comic Dork Tower, the illustrator of Munchkin Shakespeare, and the creator of the board game Apples to Apples. When we were performing in Madison, Wisconsin back in March, I was able to finally not only meet but speak with John about his amazing work and the incredible and intimidating breadth of it. You were giving me a little bit of background before the before the uh, I started recording. Um, um, born in England, moved a lot between the the UK and the US. Started college in the UK as an astrophysicist, where inexplicably the peop- the, the UK establishment there decide wants you to figure out your life's journey at the age of 16. And um, 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 but you decided yikes. And 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 was it cartooning that pulled you away? What was it that pulled you away from astrophysics? Astrophysics. It was actually the n-dimensional tensor calculus that drove me away. <laughs> it was insane. I'm I'm not a you know great mathematician on the best of days, and all of a sudden I'm studying astrophysics, you know, with the idea of looking at pretty planets and you know maybe the odd galaxy or something. Yeah. And it's n-dimensional uh, calculus. Uh, Turns out you need to know. You do, and in multiple dimensions, n dimensions to be specific, uh, and tensors, and calculus. I mean, you know, they, I was just tense. Yes, I was very tense, extremely. I mean, this is the other thing. You have multiple interests across the humanities and the sciences. You're a fan of all, but what would you consider yourself to actually be? A dork. What? A dork. A dork. <laughs> that covers so many sins. But it was, it was a. I mean, it was honestly uh, a good indication of what I would do later in life. I I am a fan of a lot of things. Yeah. I love history. I love English literature. I love the sciences. I'm not a good scientist. Right. Well, I love music. I'm a terrible musician, so it's okay. <laughs> uh, but it turns out what I was good at was economics. Okay. I uh, studied economics here at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. And it came very, very easily to me. I uh, would literally skip two out of three classes and get the highest marks in the class. I would just have to crack open an econ textbook, and it just made so much sense. I actually, my favorite professor, I feel so sad about this, and shame, I feel a great deal of shame about this, <laughs> but my favorite professor, I skipped, um, I skipped advanced microeconomics. Uh, I missed every class between the six week and the 12 week exam. I I did not mean to, uh, Professor Larry Deutsch, I apologize, <laughs> but I skipped every class between the six week and the 12 week, it just happens. You know, skipping classes builds up its own momentum. Yeah. You know, you get a little ashamed and they get really ashamed and then you realize I can't possibly show my face in class. Then the exam happens. 
until a week before the exam, I broke open the textbook, I started reading it, and I ended up with the highest mark in class. We hate people like you. <laughs> well, they only hate me for the economics. Everything else, everything else I was terrible at. Well, and what were you doing when you were when you were skipping these classes? Were you at the at the at the paper? Yes, I was the let me uh, skipping classes, let me hang out at the Daily Cardinal, the student newspaper, uh, the the first daily student newspaper here in Madison. And I was uh, working on my comics, both editorial cartooning and my comic strip, which at the time was a strip called Wildlife. And uh, yeah, just hanging out the, at the newspaper, writing articles, uh, getting to do things like interview REM before they came here, which was awesome. Was this before they were REM? Were they still kind of a, uh, an unknown underground band? Uh, this would be their third album okay. uh, that came so to not. play. So it was yeah. they're they're starting to get really well known. Yeah. And I, I did the interview from the offices of the Daily Cardinal, and embarrassingly, almost every other staff member of the Daily Cardinal was on all the other. Lines listening in as I <laughs> talked with Mike Mills. Um, now I want to. Th- now I'm imagining you drawing the members of REM in your style. Is that a thing you ever did? No, because back then I was a terrible caricaturist. Okay. Uh, the nice thing about Munchkin is it's let me uh, become a very a much better uh, caricaturist. But you know, in the same way that uh, the Simpsons yes. aren't aren't true caricatures, we can recognize them. They're this. Uh, I can draw somebody in the Munchkin style. Yes. Yeah, so we'll get to the Munchkin games in a second. But but how? So this these are the origins of of your comic strip, Dark Dark Tower. Yes. Um, Wildlife was a comic I actually created in high school back in England. And one of the characters was Carson the Muskrat. Uh, it's a long story why he's a muskrat and why he's named Carson. But he actually uh, came through uh, when I stopped doing Dark Tower. I'm oh, sorry, uh, 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 beg your pardon. When I stopped doing Wildlife, I kept Carson in the new strip, Dark Tower. Uh-huh. And he is uh, yeah, essentially my cartoon alter ego. Okay. So a lot of times when people meet me, their first what they first say is, I thought you'd be shorter. <laughs> Is there, I, I, I know that every, I know that all writing is autobiographical, autobiographical, all, li, you know, writing with words. Is drawing autobiographical? Well, the, the, the comic strip is. Dork Tower is definitely autobiographical. I mean, do your characters look like you? <laughs> my, my characters look like uh, badly drawn. No, actually, I'm, I'm proud of my style at this point in the game. Uh, oh, you sh- absolutely should be. No, 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 it's very distinctive. I'm just wondering, does autobiography translate? Translate visually or only uh, 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 subject-wise or word, you know, li- oh, God, I, if only I were a writer and good with words, I could explain <laughs> what I was talking about. Um, not really. I mean, I, I've got a character who stands in for me, who is my, you know, literal uh, um, alter ego in the strip. Right. Uh, and he doesn't look that much like me. For one thing, he wears glasses all the time. And I normally don't. People say, why are you wearing glasses? Well, when I'm drawing the comic, I'm always wearing glasses, so I draw myself with glasses uh, but he started he started appearing a little more often as I'm trying to do some uh, comics just about the the creative life about you know now that I've got a daughter a nine-year-old daughter the rest of the characters really can't suddenly have a daughter <laughs> uh, that that's you know, sort of thing unless you know you're 
Gary Trudeau and you take a few years off and all of a sudden, wow, look, right. they've grown. Right. Uh, so yeah, I've, thro I've, I've, I've thrown myself in in a fairly obvious way. Okay. Uh, but no, he doesn't really look that much like me. And can you describe the, the, the world or the theme or the subject of Dork Tower? Yeah, Dork Tower is about a group of friends who are gamers. Mm -hmm. And it started off as a pure gaming strip, but since then it's evolved into much more of a general geek culture, occasional uh, uh, cultural commentary, but you know, it really does revolve around geekdom yeah. uh, fandom. Yeah. So there'll be anything from Star Wars to gaming to um, Game of Thrones to television, books, uh, everything. Geek culture has become so mainstream. It has. That's the, yes. Yeah. So in, in large part, I want to say because of you and Dork Tower. Oh gosh, no. I, don't, I mean, thank you, but no, I think it's, I think basically all of the, all of the geeks who uh, started gaming in the 1980s, or in my case, the 1970s, um, all of a sudden in the 90s, I was working at the Wisconsin State Journal, and I was writing reviews about games, and a lot of other people were writing reviews about games about approximately the same age. In San Francisco, they used to do a lot of game reviews, and yeah. the Chronicle of there, I believe it was. And I think it's just that the people who, you know, the first wave of geek culture, the first role-playing uh, gamers in the 1970s, 1980s, all of a sudden started getting real jobs and started getting influenced and started thinking to themselves, hey, this is a really cool hobby I've got. Let me tell more people about it, which actually is what fandom is all about to me. And, and um, uh, I mean, comic strips used to appear in papers because there used to be a thing called newspapers. Um, was that true of Dork Tower? And where, where can people find it now if they somehow never stumbled on it? Dork Tower began in a couple of gaming magazines uh, back in 1997. So this is actually the 20th uh, anniversary of Dork Tower. I got it wrong. Last year was the 20th, but I forgot about it. So this year <laughs> is the actual celebration of the 20th. I did the math incorrectly. Again, it all comes back to math. Yes, my yes. <laughs> but anyway, it began in a magazine called Shadus. Then it started running in Dragon Magazine, the Dungeons & Dragons magazine. So that was really cool. And then it got picked up by a couple of other geek publications. Uh, it ran in a publication called Interactive Week for a while. And then around, after the turn of the century, and boy, using that phrase unironically. And we're almost two decades into yes. this century too, which is kind of mind-boggling. Yes, yeah, so now people know which century you're referring to. Right. It's like up until 2008, 2009, you're going, the turn of the century, ha, ha, ha. No, literally, the turn of the century. Um, newspapers started dying out. The publication industry started taking really heavy hits. And so Dork Tower became more and more of a web strip. And so it's appearing online now at dorktower.com twice a week. And hopefully, I'm trying to get that up to three times a week. Uh, we've got a Patreon going, which has been going great. Oh, good. So, yeah, that's been, it's been wonderful. Crowdfunding has made all the difference. Oh, that's good to know. Hmm, getting ideas for the podcast. <laughs> Hi, this is Ellen Margolis, Chair of Theatre and Dance at Pacific University in Oregon, and you're listening to the Reduced Shakespeare Company podcast. <laughs>
Where can you RSC the RSC? We're taking the summer of 2018 off, but you can get plenty of incredibly reduced Shakespeare in your own home by owning your very own copy of Pop-Up Shakespeare, illustrated by the marvelous Jenny Mazels. It's on sale worldwide, and you can find links to both Amazon and independent bookstores in the U.S. and the U.K. on our website. And our fall of 2018 tour dates are also now online. We're performing Long Lost Shakes, The Ultimate Christmas Show Abridged, and the complete works of William Shakespeare Abridged Revised in Nagadochus in Austin, Texas, Winston-Salem, North Carolina, New Hope, Pennsylvania, Athens, Georgia, Tahlequah, Oklahoma, Pasadena, California, Saginaw, Michigan, Lynchburg, and Harrisonburg, Virginia, Lewisburg, West Virginia, Chickasaw, Oklahoma, Columbia, Missouri, Stowe, Vermont, and Livermore, California. And since I have you here, I'll let you know that in the first half of 2019, we'll be touring the complete works of William Shakespeare, Ridged, Revised, in Wingate, South Carolina, Morristown, New Jersey, Lancaster, California, Idaho Falls, Idaho, Houghton, Michigan, St. John, Minnesota, Reston, Virginia, Appleton, Wisconsin, Lubbock, Texas, Amherst, Massachusetts, Flint, Michigan, River Forest, and Effingham, Illinois, and Norfolk, Virginia. And we'll be giving two performances of William Shakespeare's long-lost first play abridged in Los Angeles at the Broad Stage in Santa Monica, California, next April. As always, the very best way to stay up to date about all of our worldwide performance dates is to sign up for the Reduced Reader, our email newsletter. Go to ReducedShakespeare.com and click on the link to subscribe and check out our touring page for specific box office, venue, and ticket information. And now back to my conversation with cartoonist and oh-so-much-more, John Kavalik. So Dork Tower is kind of is about gamers, but but this is something you come by honestly. You are both a designer and an illustrator of games, including the game that that I just played for the first time, Munchkin Shakespeare Deluxe. How did you get into gaming? Um, uh, and and um, why was I why did I get why was I so um, frustrated and bad at playing Munchkin Shakespeare? <laughs> um, well, I'm terrible at Munchkin. Uh, Munchkin is just celebrated. It's 15th anniversary, so now it's like it's 16, 17 years. I've only ever won two games of Munchkin. Okay. Because people think I know how to play it because I illustrated the dang cards. Right. Uh, so I get ganged up on frequently and often. Well, you, I was, I thought, oh, I'm role-playing game. I'm an actor. I should be good at a role-playing game. But then it, it I, somehow I wasn't. I, I just, I lose the plot somehow, and it involves math, which is another <laughs> my bet, bet noir. Well, much is not really a role-playing game. It is uh, a parody of role-playing games. So this could have been one of your mistakes. <laughs> it's actually a very straightforward card game, but all of the exceptions to the rules are on the cards. Okay. And there are, in Munchkin Shakespeare, almost 300 cards. So there are a lot of exceptions, yes. and you've got to be able to keep these straight in your mind. Yes. It's really not that difficult, but going from a even a normal uh, uh, hobby game, like Settlers of Catan, or Carcassonne, or Ticket to Ride, there's a whole other level of rules uh, in a game like Munchkin. Right. So it is not that difficult to pick up, and you know, if, if you guys want tomorrow, I can you know, play around with you. Oh, that would be fun. Uh, but um, yeah, it was it was a series of coincidences. I've been a gamer since the mid 1970s because in England at the time. A lot of people were into historical miniature wargaming. Yeah. So I'd buy some Airfix models, and all of a sudden, some kids in schools had rules how to play with them. So we were doing battles with uh, uh, the Africa Corps and the Eighth Army. Uh, and I loved this. And from there, I discovered board games, yeah. board war games. And because what, you know, the, the sort of German style, European style games, Euro games, weren't really available then. 
the first one was uh, something called Cosmic Encounter. Of that, really, uh, I mean, to me, of that style, that uh, started everything, but it was a very slow growth. Um, so Cosmic Encounter had just come out, and I loved it. It was a beautifully designed game. Uh, and then I found out about Dungeons and Dragons around 1977, 78, and that blew my mind. I loved role playing. I loved role playing games, and so it stuck with me all these years. Uh, so when I was a writer after college, I got a job as a cartoonist and a writer at the local state journal here in town, um, and. Uh, I just got them to send me to Milwaukee one year to cover Gen Con, the biggest gaming convention in the U.S. And I was able to cover Gen Con and have the State Journal pay for it. It was awesome. From there, I started just making con connections in the gaming industry because I loved it so much. I started writing for little fanzines, and I started doing cartoons for Steve Jackson Games. Steve Jackson Games are the people who make Munchkin. Uh, and it was just a couple of a, a number of really weird circumstances. I won't go into them because I'm rambling now. I totally know it. <laughs> is the, is the, uh, uh, Steve Jackson also make apples to apples? No, apples to apples was something we created here in Madison. Okay. Uh, there is. Uh, I illustrated my first professional game illustration was for Steve Jackson Games, a uh, card game, a collectible card game, which was big at the time. Uh, the whole collectible card gaming craze, Magic: The Gathering, spawned an entire movement. And so I was illustrating some cards for Steve Jackson Games. The game was called Illuminati New World Order. It was a very tongue-in-cheek conspiracy collectible card game. From uh, until some Republicans thought it was serious and dis and, and, and and changed American uh, domestic policy. Oh my goodness! Actually, you know what's really scary is that there are some in incredibly worrying conspiracy sites that are based off of this card game. Oh my God! I was right. Was, there were hundreds of cards produced for this game, so obviously some of them are going to have like some uh, coincidental predictive powers, and there are some bizarre conspiracy theories out there about. Uh, some of these cards. But anyway. Uh, I've just changed the title of this episode to Unfortunate Unintended Consequences. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, which is funny because most of my life has been fortunate unintended yes, consequences. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, a company, a game company was being put together here in Madison called Out of the Box Games. And the uh, majority uh, owner of the company knew that I was an illustrator because of this game Illuminati New World Order. They came to me to get me to buy into the company and be their illustrator. I didn't really want to buy into the company. I felt a little forced into this. I've got a hard time. I had a hard time then saying no to things. <laughs> so I borrowed some money from my parents uh, to buy into this company, uh, and they were producing a little uh, uh, chess variant. And here's one. I don't know much about the gaming industry, but the one thing is you don't make a company to form a chess variant. <laughs> Just don't do that, kids. Don't do that. But the first convention we went to uh, down in Columbus, Ohio, to try and sell this game, it's a good game, by the way. It's a very good game, but it's a chess variant. And right. there are lots of chess variants out there. But the first uh, convention we went to, uh, a guy walks up to us with a game he invented called Apples and Oranges, and he wants us to make this for him. Uh-huh. And we, we played it at the end of the first day at the convention at the bar. And it, it was a big, clunky uh, game with a lot of components. 
But they had this one section where you just had these cards, red cards and green cards. And so you all had your red cards, which were nouns, um, people, places, things. And the green cards were the adjectives. And you turn over a card, what is the most happy? What is the most disappointing? And, you know, the Kennedy assassination, I don't know. But it blew our minds. So we'd never seen anything like this. I don't believe there was any card game with what is now known as a judge mechanic. And at that point, Mark, the majority owner of the company, picked up the entire rest of the board, put it on another table, and we spent hours playing with this card game. It was just amazing. This is, we knew that we had something incredibly new, uh, something nobody had ever seen before. And the whole drive back to Madison, we just could not stop talking about this game. So we bought the rights to it, and Apple Apples is, you know, we, we couldn't get the name Apples and Oranges. That was, so there was a drawing I did of an orange. Who's uh, <laughs> become like the peak best of gaming. You know, it was kicked out right before it became famous, and it became Apple Apples and sold millions and millions of copies. That's awesome. Well, and, and, and I'm not a gamer at all, and yet we have a box, of, we have Apple Apples in our house. I, it's, I'm, I'm so grateful. I've been part of two once-in-a-lifetime games. Apples to Apples changed gaming. Before Apples to Apples, if you go to Target or Walgreens or Walmart, uh, it would all be uh, uh, trivia games. And I, you know, got more old classics like Monopoly and, you know, yeah. I'll get, I'll get, you know, don't get me started on Monopoly. That's a separate podcast. It's it's like poison to me. It's probably driven more people away from gaming than, (laughs) uh, it's just, it's a box in it. It's the thing grandmothers buy their grandkids for Christmas and it's a old fashioned game. It's, it's linear. It's hard to catch up to the leader and the mid game. It's poorly designed that way. Even if you play it properly, which most people don't. <laughs> it's just not a very good game anymore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but anyway, that's, that's beside the point. Well, and in addition to Apples to Apples, uh, the success of Apples to Apples, it, didn't it sort of inspire Cards Against Humanity as well? That's a polite way of putting it. Right, that's what I wondered <laughs> if that was a polite way of saying it. Yeah, yeah. And God bless them, they've done good things with their success and their money, and they right. continue to do good things. But the thing is, we had a choice with Apples to Apples. If we wanted to try and patent the mechanic, the judge mechanic, uh, the way uh, Magic the Gathering patented some of its mechanics, yeah. and we didn't. Yeah. And I think gaming is richer for it. A lot of the games you'll see now, uh, especially in the big box stores, uh, are gateway games to the some of the more serious hobby games. And a lot of them are thanks to Apples to Apples. And so it's it's all been a very good thing. So when you came to uh, start drawing the Munchkin games, or, well, and specifically the Munchkin Shakespeare, you, uh, for, uh, for all the things you're a nerd about and knowledgeable uh, of, was Shakespeare one of those things? Gosh, I love Shakespeare so much. Okay. Uh, I went through the typical British school by process of reading, for example, in my case, Julius Caesar dryly in class and not getting anything from it. But once I saw it performed on the stage, uh, 
uh, I was hooked. I love Shakespeare so much, and um, it's just been a, a great passion of mine. When I would fly back to the UK, I, I would the first thing I would do would be to check out what the RSC was doing. This is back when they would uh, be at the Barbican Center all the time. I remember seeing Hamlet once, so jet lagged, but I could get a ticket for that night. So I landed in the UK, got a ticket to Hamlet, and just sat there loving every minute of it, trying not to fall asleep because of the jet lag, but right. still like, oh my gosh, I got a ticket to see Hamlet. Wow. Um, yeah, I, I um, a very good friend of mine in school back in England actually became the artistic director of the Globe, and uh, Dominic Drumgold. Sure. Uh, and he was he was great. He was like a year below me, and I think his brother was a year ahead of me, but he. Uh, he was a day pupil. The school I went to was a boarding school, but they had day pupils. So every year there would be a house uh, play competition. So all of the school houses, and they do have houses at British boarding schools. It's very Harry Potter. Very, very. And we had like maybe ten houses, eight or ten houses. So there were a lot of uh, uh, plays staged. But he staged, for the day pupils, he staged Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are Dead. To this day, one of my favorite plays. And I had a small part in this. So I actually had, I could have on my CV that I was directed by Dominic Drumgoul, and uh, that was pretty, pretty cool. That's it for this week's Reduced Shakespeare Company podcast. For more information about John's work, go to dorktower.com. And you can also follow John on Twitter at muskrat underscore John. Then send us your celebrations of geek culture to feedback at reducedshakespeare.com. You can also engage with us and other fans on Facebook or Twitter. You can find easy links to all these social networks at our website, reducedshakespeare.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Austin Titchener. And the RC is now on Instagram, too, at reducedshakespeare.company. Thanks, as always, to Assistant Dork Matthew Croak, Web Services by Ginger Power Limited, Music by John Weber and Garage Band. Our random fan shout-out this week goes to Dana and Julie from Pittsburgh. No reason, it's just random. Special thanks to Ellen Margolis, Chair of Theater and Dance at Pacific University in Oregon. Ellen's play Pericles Wet, an adaptation and expansion of Shakespeare's Pericles, the Prince of Tyre, just received a Drammy Award for Best Original Script from the Portland Civic Theater Guild. And finally, thanks very much to you for listening. I'm Austin Titchener, 604-1812ths of the Reduced Shakespeare Company. Cartoonists, uh, gamer, kind of astrophysicist. What are you going to be reinventing next? Um, well, since my both of my hobbies became my job, gaming and cartooning, I've actually picked up a couple more hobbies, neither of which I'm in any fear of turning into a professional. Cooking and guitar playing. I can't wait for those new uh, strips. <laughs> This podcast is a production of the Reduce Shakespeare Company. Reducing expectations since 1981. Go to ReduceShakespeare.com for performance dates, actor bios, email newsletters, and so much less. And so much less. And so much less. And so much less. And so much less.